Is this a dream? No, it's not a dream. I'm an angel. Why would God send me an angel? Because God knows that everyone needs a little coaching now and then. I'm loving angels. I saw an angel. Oh, angels say. Hi, and welcome to the Super Angel Podcast, the go-to podcast for angels backing the next generation of European unicorn founders. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our community at eu.vc. Today, we're happy to welcome David, angel investor, CEO, and co-founder of Sender, a digital truck freight forwarding business. Together with his co-founders, David has built up a team of over 1,000 employees across 11 offices in Europe. In the process, they have been supported by strong investors such as Scania, Axel, and Project A, and have secured over 300 million euros in funding. They are quite active angels, particularly in the German ecosystem. If you're an angel listening in and wanting to get closer to the European angel scene, do not hesitate to reach out to us. We'd love to connect and see how we can play together. And now, some words from our beloved sponsor. Vaban from Carter is the easiest way to launch and run your syndicate. Our end-to-end platform automates your back office so you can focus on the things that matter, supporting the next generation of entrepreneurs and building your network. Angel investors are the fuel to innovation, and we've created the Atom SPV to allow for more deals, more ownership, and less fees. Backed by Carter, the leading fintech infrastructure company, We'll be with you all from fundraising to exit. Investors on our platform have raised over $2.5 billion in global investments for companies including Revolut, Bolt, and SpaceX. David, welcome to the Super Angel Podcast. Super exciting to have you here. And to be honest, super exciting for me to be hosting this session with Anthony as well. How are you today? I'm great. Super excited to be here as well. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Thanks for joining the pod, David. So psyched to have you come on the show and share your perspective as you are truly one of the very successful entrepreneurs in the European tech scene, but also quite an active angel too. So let's get started. Share with us your story and what got you into angel investing. My entrepreneurial journey started uh, doing an MBA when I started working on a project. And after graduating, I thought I had the best business plan ever and a great presentation. So I decided to move to Berlin to start and launch and execute on that idea. After a year, we realized that that idea was not as great as we thought. And I went through a tricky phase, almost had to switch off the lights. But in 2017, with two new co-founders pivoted into Sender 2.0, and that the new business model was much more successful. Today, we have over 1,000 employees and active across Europe as the largest digital freight forwarder. To my grandmother, I explained it as an Uber for trucks, very straightforward business model. In this journey, I learned a lot. Um, So I wanted to also take these learnings in multiple ways and started doing some angel investments with my two co-founders, Nico and Julius. And uh, to date, I think we've done just over 40 investments in, in pretty cool startups, mostly in Europe. Very cool. And uh, from those, tell us, do you want to share a bit more with the, with the listeners, a few of the most memorable deals you've done and a bit of more color around them? One deal we, we made was uh, uh, Gorillas, probably 
most listeners know gorillas uh, and it was a great experience for me because i went through the different phases and learned a lot from let's say the different rounds the dynamics as well as uh, the exit to get here understand how that process works what are the dynamics behind the scenes and let's say what is happening until the very last moment of the deal was uh, extremely valuable for me. I learned a lot. And I think that once I'm going to get maybe into similar situation or anyway, other exit uh, situations that I can learn from that. And the second maybe memorable investment for me where I learned a lot was in another logistics startup called Cargo One. And I, I sit in the advisory board and support the team. And it was extremely valuable for me because I took a different perspective. I'm sitting on the other side of the board table. And also for my own board meetings, I learned so much on how to interact with the board, how to avoid awkward silences, how to avoid certain discussion, how to better structure the conversation. And so that has been extremely valuable also for me. There's plenty of VCs uh, that haven't seen the full cycle, you know, from investment to exit. It's amazing to hear that angels like yourself have. Do you think, and that's a bit out of the blue, but would you say that your uh, positioning as an angel was very much complementary to those of VCs, to the eyes of the founders as they were going towards that process or any experience you want to share with regards to that? Absolutely. I think is also our pitch and also our promise to the founders that we invest into that they can discuss with us things that with the VC maybe are more difficult to discuss. Topics around compensation, topic around stress with your co-founders, topics around secondary. Right? These are all things that, especially for first-time founders, when they witness these opportunities or challenges, something new and uh, things that you might not want to discuss directly in the second step, definitely, but in the first step with your venture capital investors. And this is where I think the experience that I made with my co-founders in our journey come in handy. And this is, let's say, where we complement venture capital firms. Very much aligned to that. And, and for us with Cocoa, we're trying to do a bit of a hybrid of that for different types of topics as well, but that relationship 100%. You did mention a lot of professional learnings already. Do you want to share anything that you think angel investing has given you personally as well? Um, yeah, in addition to the learnings that I now use in my also day-to-day -day at Senna, I think it was, but it is still one side an ability to disconnect from my day-to-day -day job. I really see it as a hobby. I really enjoy doing this. So it's a way to compensate a little bit for some of the stress that I witness at Sender. And the other thing is also to give back a little bit. We've done a lot of or make a lot of mistakes. I think a lot of young founders are still going to do similar, if not the same mistakes, but maybe they can avoid some and also find better outcomes to some others. And also in the game with VCs, try to optimize maybe here and there a bit more than maybe what we did as first-time founders. And yeah, this is also something that motivates me very much. David, I'd love to kind of derail completely the script from the get-go. <laughs> you spoke about Cargo One and your learnings about working the board or work on the board, whatever you want to call it, right? Could you give us a quick rundown? I think that's super insightful, something some VCs have written about a bit last year, but that I don't think we hear that much. So I'd love to hear your kind of key takeaways of that experience. It was completely new setting for me before I always had a board that I had to manage. And with all the challenges and you know, the preparation and also the stress that you have, 
And then suddenly on the other side, where you're more a listener and, you know, you're supporting the team. And I saw, you know, how the two sides sometimes are much closer than one would think as a, as a founder, but I also realized a lot of things around managing expectation, aligning expectation, especially when there are shifts in strategies, new opportunities that you want to evolve. Sometimes as a founder, because you're in it on a daily basis, you already jump ahead of the thinking process. And then when you go to, for example, to your board, you sometimes maybe also assume that part of that thinking and learning process is understood by the rest of the board members and um, while they have multiple investments and therefore one learning for me is always start with the basics and take um, uh, your investors through the learning process that you have done when then recommending new opportunities that came up throughout this journey. Lindley asked him what his thesis was on. So if you've listened to that sound, you know that now is the section where we talk about David's thesis and strategy as an angel. David, many angels don't necessarily think about their angel investing as something that's super structured, you know, with a strong investment thesis and super well-defined strategy. Others do. So I'd love to ask you, how do you think about that as a whole? You've started off by saying 40 investments or so already. It's quite a lot. Uh, so I'd love to know how you think about this in the macro sphere. We developed the strategy as we learned and went through the investments, as I mentioned earlier, I only invest with my two co-founders, Nico and Julius. And this is why I was also able to do with them so many investments. We divide and conquer and support each other. There are different parts in angel investing. It's definitely the sourcing part. Then there is more the execution and admin part. And then there is the portfolio support part. And there are different skill sets needed for all three of them. And this is why I think having two very strong co-founders that complement uh, myself is extremely important. For example, the entire execution part, everything from reviewing documents, cap tables, managing power of attorneys and so on, transferring the money at the right time. And all of that is extremely time consuming and something that one of my co-founders, Nico, loves to do. So this is where he has uh, the opportunity to take over leadership and responsibility. I like to do a lot of sourcing and bring in deals that we can all review together. Portfolio management, we try to divide a little bit among ourselves. Um, uh, we commit typically to one year of active support where we have regular meetings, at least on a quarterly basis with the portfolio companies that we invest into. We divide and conquer. Julius and I maybe take a bit more than, than Nico since he's taking care also of the, the other part I, I mentioned. And we say one year, not because after one year it ends. Like with Cargo One, it has been now three or four years already that I've been supporting them. But it's what we think is fair and something that we can really commit to. After one year, we still support if we can, if it makes sense. But then if you have so many, let's say, direct investments, it yeah, becomes a lot. So we want to be very clear that say for one year we do that. So on a yearly basis, we do maybe 10, 15 investments and we divide them among us so we can support them actively. In terms of strategy, uh, we decided to have two vehicles and two slightly different strategies. One is uh, we invest in logistics, supply chain, 
focused startups in a broader sense. And this is where also Gorillas, Chicago One fit in. And this is where maybe we go in a bit earlier, also as angel in the right sense of the angel. So before venture capital firms, we understand that and can really support them in defining product market fit and the business model as they are in a much earlier stage. And then we have a second vehicle where we co-invest with venture capital firms. Uh, and this is more opportunistic when we like the founders and when we can support the founders with scaling the organization, going through some of the challenges, not really business model related, but it's more scaling related. And we divided this into two different vehicles and we are quite strict to ensure that on one, we focus on a bit earlier, logistics, supply chain, focus enabled startups. And the other one is bit later stage co-investing uh, with, with leading VCs, tier one VCs, and then um, uh, yeah, supporting the founders more on the organizational side of, of, of their journey. Well, I must say I'm quite impressed. I think that's quite a structured approach and, you know, versus other people we've had and, and generally other angels that I've discussed. And, and I do think we've found that like expectation setting when it comes to portfolio support so you can scale yourself uh, is super important as well. And having a firm kind of value add towards the entrepreneurs that you pitch uh, is super important. Would you say you have any no-go areas that you wouldn't invest into or conversely, like any passion areas besides logistics and supply chain when it comes to more generalist investments? I think it's important for us to understand the business model. So there are a few things that we don't understand, things that maybe last year are still, let's say, hot areas such as, I don't know, crypto metaverse are things that we don't fully understand. So we say we... We don't do that also on the, let's say, co-investment side, the second vehicle that we invest through. This is more things that we really, really understand in the education space, for example, a little bit in the fintech space, but are things that we really have to understand. Um, so no-go is things that we don't understand. And on things beyond um, um, logistics and supply chain is the, what I just mentioned, actually, education related startups. We, we did a couple of investment, for example, Stewie, a German startup or FinTech Lemon Market. I don't know if you know that. It's the second one, earlier stage that we did. Um, uh, so probably these are two areas that we like, probably because we also understand them. Geo-wise, you know, we, there's a lot of differing opinions there <laughs> in what should be the geo-focus. Are you saying that you're focused more in, in your home turf because you have access, you know the people, you know, you get invited to deals, et cetera? Or are you guys actually trying to build out that network even further and, and get deals outside of your home turf? No, I think it's important to have a focus and to have access to a specific deal flow. And this is why we did most of our investments in Europe. Let's say 90 something percent, unless there's a very specific reason why we as an angel can support startups outside of Europe. And it's only logistics outside of Europe because there are similarities and really where you can support. There's no reason why we should be investing or having access to these deal flows. If a deal arrives on my table on, I don't know, a startup in South America that is not in logistics, probably there should have been someone else taking that opportunity unless I have a preferred connection, direct connection to the team or the area. So I think it just makes sense to focus and we have a better network and better access to the right deals in Europe. And this is where you know, we focus on. And again, outside of Europe, it's mostly because there is specific, uh, let's say, know-how in logistics that we can bring to the table. And that's more like a reach out from 
the team or venture capital firm to say it could make sense to bring in also our expertise. Two follow-ups on assessing uh, opportunities. I mean, angels potentially have more flexibility when it comes to uh, things like upside potential. How do you think about that? I know in venture capital and, and being myself, you know, that's a very big factor to make the maths work, to return the funds, you know, for the power law and the power of that. But as an angel investor frequently, like, you know, a check in is a check out. So how do you think about upside potential when you're assessing companies? Well, especially when we co-invest with tier one investors, we say there are two upsides that maybe uh, venture capital firms don't always have. When you have a tier one top VC invest, the likelihood of having a follow-on round is extremely high with maybe tier two, tier three investors, which de-risks. And also the second point is around when is the time to exit. An angel has much more flexibility, especially maybe if there's a follow-on round with a tier two, tier three investor, um, LBC, when angel can exit, the tier one investor probably cannot exit because of... uh, clear messaging uh, reasons and because probably a T2 otherwise wouldn't um, come in. Um, so there's just more flexibility on the time horizon. Uh, luckily until now, we we haven't executed on this opportunity. So it's more hypothetical for us, but definitely as an angel, you just have more flexibility than a venture capital firm. But it's also a bit tempting, right? Because yes. you can take off chips off the table, but also for angel investments, at the end of the day, there are a couple of deals, one, two, three deals that will be those that hopefully will make all the difference. And if you take chips off the table too early because you can and because it's tempting, then, you know, uh, you might divest too quickly from actually those that those startups that you want to stay in until the very end. If you had to choose, would you say founder or market? What do you tend to invest based off? Founder, 100%. And the reason is, and this is something that I saw also in my journey, there's so much uncertainty and business evolution that a founder has to go through. And you need to find founders that have this killer instinct. And that's, I think, something that I got from one of our board members from Excel. Her name is Sonali. I learned from her, you have to invest in founders that will always find a way forward and face challenges without giving up and always trying uh, finding a solution. And as especially for early stage startups, I think investing in the right team that can scale and the right founder that can scale with the complexity is the more important thing. But it's extremely difficult to sense that because as organizations become more complex, and we've seen this with thousand people now, it's just difficult to, to summarize in words, but the complexity also for a brain to, to handle, understand, is so much higher than with 100 people. And you have to make sure that you find founders that can scale and follow that growth. And then it is so difficult, if not impossible, to, to find that upfront. So gut feeling plays an important role, but understanding founders that can really go through this journey is extremely, let's say, important for me, though it's difficult to have a full assessment, but it's definitely one of the main focus areas for me when, when taking a decision. I love how immediate your reply was on that one. Super clear also. You know, you talked about your, your two different vehicles, so to speak, two different sub-strategies, right? And I think it's very clear, like, that is very much you talking about the first strategy, which is your focus. But I'd love to deep dive a bit on your second strategy, where you're co-investing with VCs. And 
obviously here I'm completely biased, right? <laughs> because I'm literally just day in, day out focused on investing in, into VC funds and thinking how to collaborate with them. How can I help angels extract value from them, et cetera, and et cetera. So I'd love to ask, you know, how you think about working with VCs? How do you think about collaboration? Have you invested into VC funds? If yes, why? And if you can share, would love to know uh, those names. If not, why not? Or is it just a happenstance that you haven't? So a big question, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Investing in VCs, I think, complements our strategy and also strengthens our relationship with VCs. So we said we only focus in Europe and mostly into logistics. Investing into venture capital firms allow us to go a bit broader, both geographically as well as, let's say, industry-wise. So I think that's one of the reasons why we decided to go also for LP investments. And I think the second very important aspect here is also the relationship building. Investing into a VC as an LP also gives you better access to DFlow and helps you build a relationship with the funds and the managers in the funds that is active. And the big problem in deal sharing is always, you know, so many people, but when there's a deal, it's kind of not always top of mind to reach out to the right people. It goes both ways. And once you have financial commitment towards a VC, that changes a little bit um, that dynamic. And that's uh, yeah, why we decided to do that. Well, knowing that today we are in a very privileged position as founders of a scale up, where we have also opportunities to build this network through also LP investments. I expect that maybe in 10, 20 years, depending on what I will be doing then, I won't be as privileged and I won't have as many opportunities as I have today. Um, so to maximize a little bit the spot I'm in right now and the seat I'm in right now, I think VC investments make a lot of sense um, to, to boost that yeah, privileged position that I'm in today. Yeah. I love that. I, I took you in, uh, um, a quick note in the beginning of, of our chat. You know, you're talking about your value add and your positioning as a group of angels, you and your co-founders, right? And I, I literally wrote down like expectation management, something this podcast has spoken a lot about, you know, and you saying, you know, it's a one-year relationship, not that it ends after a year, but it's what they can expect from, you know? So in my head, that's you also being very good at managing the expectations of the founders. So I'd ask a similar question towards this topic, you know, you were very purposeful in your reply just now of what you expect to get in this relationship with the VCs, right? Whether that's as an LP or just as co-investing with them. So how do you manage the expectations there, both your own, but also the GPs, right? Because if you want to get deal flow as an example, well, you can't just put a ticket and hope <laughs> for that to happen, right? You need to be also purposeful and have some intent towards that with the VCs. I think um, on one side, we commit also to share deals and especially on, let's say, the second strategy because investments are mostly with funds that we invested into. And this is where we have an active commitment that once we have an opportunity that we are exploring or that we invest into, that we also share this with the, the funds that we invested in. And this has to stay top of mind. So again, having this relationship and this commitment just pushes us to really share these opportunities without forgetting about it. Even though sometimes they're a bit early, but 
it just, you know, um, about the process and making sure that, that we share that. And I think the same way uh, funds have then a commitment towards us to show us co-investment opportunities. And I have to say, when it does anything related to supply chain logistics that crosses their table, you know, they reach out and you might have picked up. I typically have an opinion, sometimes a strong opinion. And my commitment then towards the invest, uh, the WCs is to share that opinion. And I know that sometimes it might be a bit too hard, but let's say that's what I give, uh, let's say, as a commitment when they reach out and say, hey, what do you think about this opportunity? You know, I just want to highlight that, that, you know, also coming from a VC perspective, that, you know, the value thinking about RLPs as well from a you know founder operator perspective, like the value we derive is is so, so big, right? From sourcing to due diligence to co-investment, right? It's it comes across, it becomes a huge asset. It complements. We see it as a very, very core weapon of ours. So I can just attest to that. You guys tell me what you've been learning. So if you heard this cue, this means we are in the core learning segment. So on that note, and I know uh, we touched upon some already, but if you had to share three core learnings from your time angel investing, what would those be? The first one, invest in a founder. Founders have to figure out ways to always find solution to challenges that they face. The second learning is that angel investing takes time and patience. Things just take always longer when sometimes startups that you invest into might have to take a step back before they can move forward again. So you have to expect that it takes years until you see anything come out of, of an angel investment. The last learning is um, that uh, there's much more to be gained as an angel investment beyond the financial return of the investment. Also, this is something I mentioned earlier. I learned so much in terms of things that I use now with my investors, with my board, uh, that is extremely valuable. And I would urge also other founders uh, to give a little bit back the learnings and to keep learning as they yeah, support younger teams in their journey. Just touching on the second point you mentioned, that it's a long journey, and I can definitely attest to that as well. But how do you think about uh, feedback loops or learning curves? I mean, maybe I'm putting too much my VC hat on, and I know you bring a much uh, deeper bottom-up perspective than most uh, VCs that haven't been founders and operators. But one of the issues of early stage investing is feedback loops, right? And calibrating to that. How do you think about that? So within companies, I think feedback loops have to be part of performance review and about part of the culture of a company. If you think about Zender, we have twice a year performance reviews and feedback is extremely important. One-on-one -on -one feedback where it's two-sided. And this is the only way to really have a relationship move forward and challenges to be addressed in a better way. So I think feedback is extremely valuable. Also, um, to share a bit more on Zender, also between us founders, we have regular feedback session. And I can tell you that most of the time, extremely hard. Yeah? So we're all big boys, we don't cry, but you know, sometimes we, we go very deep. Um, and I think this is what also helped us manage so many different situations and so much change that we went through. So I would recommend everyone to have this feedback. With investors, it's a bit more tricky, especially with venture capital, because most of the cases you're figuring out things and you want to freak out investors, especially if there are certain challenges that just popped up, losing a customer, losing a key team members and so on. 
without having already analyzed the situation fully and having a solution to that. So I would actually recommend founders, especially when they getting feedback from investors on tricky situation to always come up already with one, two or three recommendation on how to let's say address it. Maybe there's a third, fourth um, approach that is defined in the discussion, in the feedback discussion, uh, but bringing only a problem to an investor is not always the right thing. If the house is on fire uh, and there's no other way to find a solution and definitely founders have to go to VCs, but if there is time to develop a hypothesis and a proposal and bring the problem and the solution to a VC and then get feedback, which is then extremely important as well, but in a slightly different way than the feedback that you get within the company. Coming back to the first one, right? The killer instinct of founders. And, you know, you spoke a bit about this when Anthony asked about a founder market. I really enjoyed that answer. My question would be actually, you know, it's something that is incredibly easy to understand, you know, founder grid, founder persistence, whatever you want to call it, right? But it's at the same time, incredibly hard to diligence identify and, and even more to kind of do so in a structured manner, right? And some investors that I know, angels, VCs alike, they just create these easy kind of ways in their mind to do it. So, And sometimes it's very qualitative and that's fine where they say, well, if I leave the first call and I'm fucking excited, right? There's something there which I can't measure, but it is still there, right? And that is enough. So my first question to you would be, you know, how do you try and assess it? And then let me add the little provocation in the question, which is where do you draw the lines? Because, and I won't name names, we've seen founders with killer instinct, but not necessarily taken the right direction. So it's taken too far, right? Where it starts becoming, we can call it abusive behavior to employees, or we can call it non-ethical behavior, whatever it is. How do you kind of try to frame it in what you believe is ethical behavior and, and right way to run a company? But first question being, how do you assess for it? Taking a step back, I look at the quality of angel investors and VCs along two dimensions. One is the understanding of the founder, understanding this killer instinct, the ability of the founder to figure things out. And yeah, second one is more analytical, understanding the business models, the economics behind that, the cohorts and so on. And I feel that investors, when they're extremely strong and one of the best investors, they are very high on, let's say, on both dimensions. But I think especially for early stage investing, in angel investing, this people dimension, understanding, being able to read the founder is even more important than the analytical uh, side. So the question now that you had is, how do you assess that? How do you learn that? I think it's it's developing a gut feeling. And gut feeling is developed by learning, doing mistakes, and really understanding, okay, um, I did an investment in a founder that had a killer instinct, but the wrong killer instinct because... Yeah, he did things he or she shouldn't have done. And this is, let's say, then the next time you face a similar type of founder, you already remember from the mistake you did the first time. The way I try to assess today the killer instinct is by choosing one topic and try to go a bit deeper and see what the answers are. And there are typically no right or wrong answers, but it just shows how much founders have thought about certain key, I think, decisions that they would have further down the road and also how quickly they can think 
for the first time about that topic and how they react to that. So that's, let's say, how I try today. Take one topic and go a bit deeper and put them a little bit out of the comfort zone and see how they react. But I'm still, let's say, I would say a relatively young angel investor. I've been doing this for three, four years. And there's so much more, especially on the people dimension that I still have to learn. And this is why I think it's good to do mistakes and we make mistakes and we learn from them. It's part of the journey. I assume that as time passes, I hopefully want to get better in understanding who has the right killer instinct and will push it through. You know, always learning. That's one of the key messages I keep from your reply. And then second, you know, just deep diving on, on as concrete example as you can to get the mental frameworks and understand how that person kind of processes information. David, I love this next session. And this is how we end every single episode. It's with our quick fire round. Quick fire, quick fire. Quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds each. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's go. First question. What's the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you started angel investing? Don't chase FOMO and stick to your area of expertise. Second question. What would be your top tips to angels wanting to do more international investments? Think about whether international investments are the right thing. Consider investment into funds as LP if you want to have a more international and diverse exposure to the startup scene. Third and final question. What advice would you give your 10-year younger self? if you only had 30 seconds to do so. The journey takes much longer than you expect and it's much more painful than you think. Finding product market fit as a founder is the first big painful aspect. And as an angel, you have to do mistakes, more mistakes earlier in your investment career in order to make sure that over time you find the two, three angel investment opportunities that make all the difference. Beautiful. David, thank you for joining us today. It was a pleasure to host you here on the Super Angel Podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining the pod, David. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Super Angel Podcast, the go-to podcast for angels backing the next generation of European unicorn founders. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends and join our Angel LP Syndicate at eu.vc. And if you're an angel listening in and wanting to get closer to the European angel scene, please do not hesitate to reach out to us. We'd love to connect and see how we can play together. And now, some words from our beloved sponsor. Vaban from Carter is the easiest way to launch and run your syndicate. Our end-to-end platform automates your back office so you can focus on the things that matter, supporting the next generation of entrepreneurs and building your network. Angel investors are the fuel to innovation, and we've created the Atom SPV to allow for more deals, more ownership, and less fees. Backed by Carter, the leading fintech infrastructure company, will be with you all from fundraising to exit. Investors on our platform have raised over $2.5 billion in global investments for companies including Revolut, Bolt, and SpaceX. You've been touched by an angel, girl.